What do you do when you have too much to do and too few hours in the day to do it? How many of you have been in that position before? Too much to do and too few hours in the day to do it. I remember when I first stepped in as um, the preaching elder here at Straight Gate Church. I was in my late 20s. My head was spinning. I was working, as I still do, a very busy job and now trying to understand everything that my father had done here for over 30 years. And I found quickly that I had far too much to do and far too few hours in the day to do it. I learned a very important lesson. It wasn't right away. It took some time and still probably is taking time. What do you do when you have too much to do and too few hours in the day to do it? You delegate if you can, if you can. I didn't learn this lesson the easy way. I learned it the hard way because I didn't delegate or didn't learn as as much as I needed to how to do that. And I think over time I've grown, as I'm sure others have, in how you empower other people to do tasks that are necessary to be done. Now this is true of not just any organization, it's true of basically every organization. You think of a workplace, you think of a boss. What is a boss charged with doing. He is charged or she is charged with empowering people. Empowering people to do tasks that need to be done and that the boss could not do themselves. That is what is essential to the operating of any kind of organization. And what I want to suggest this morning is that it is also true in regards to the operation of the kingdom of God. It is true as to the operation of the kingdom of God. Because do you want to know who had too much to do and too few hours in the day to do it? Jesus Christ. Jesus had way too much to do and too few hours in the day, if you will, to get it done. Now again, where are we in the book of Mark together? We're in the book of Mark chapter 3. We have been working through this gospel of Mark together. We are now parked on verses 7 through 19 together, and we have seen the very natural reaction to this rem- remarkable person who had entered the world. Jesus is just over 30 years old, so he would still be characterized certainly as a young man. And this young man explodes on the scene, as we've been seeing in the first two chapters of Mark, with miracle after miracle. He has divine power to heal, to cast out devils, to preach authoritatively the kingdom of God and the doctrine of God. And everyone can't believe it. And they're quickly being sorted into two camps. One camp is the Pharisees and the other chief priests and religious leaders of the day. They see Jesus as a threat, and they say, we want none of him. In fact, where we left off last week in verse 6 is the Pharisees, the religious sect, and the Herodians, a political kind of sect, who would normally be at odds with each other. They would normally have nothing to do with each other. But when it came to a new threat to both of them, What do you mean? A threat to the Pharisees because Jesus said, I didn't come to patch up your religious shirt. I came to give you a new one. 
I didn't come to preserve your old wineskins of your ritual and ceremony. I came to give you an entirely new wineskin altogether. And the Pharisee says, no thanks. No, we can't tolerate that. The Herodians, why was he a threat to them? Because who were they in favor of? Their name gives it away. Herod. They loved the rule of Herod under the Roman government. They thought, this is good, this is appropriate, this is the right rule for us. And now someone comes who is, anointed, who is, who is presenting himself as the king, the Messiah. They didn't like that threat to their political position. Do you know Jesus is always going to disrupt man's plans when it comes to man-made religion and when it comes to man-made politics? If you look at the history of the Christian church, do you know what it's done? It's been subversive to man-made religion and to man-made politics. Those who are in positions of political authority typically don't like the gospel of Christ. Why? Because it speaks truth to them. And so often the power-hungry and other kinds of tendencies that we see in political systems. Why don't religious leaders, man-made religion, like the gospel of Jesus Christ? For the same kind of reason, because it exposes corruption. At least that is the very nature of the kingdom of God. So you have these two people gathering together enemies, but enemies of the same person. So they become, if you will, friends. Now, there's another camp. The camp is of those who are curious, who are fascinated. And we're going to see here in verses 7 through 12 that Jesus is just overwhelmed with this massive crowd that comes onto him. And then we're going to see in verse 13 through 19, Jesus' response. How does Jesus respond to this massive crowd that is coming on him when he has too much to do and too few hours in the day to do it? He is going to delegate. Now you may wonder, how does this relate to me? I'm not one of the 12 disciples. I'm not one of the ones that was called initially to be his delegates, so to speak. And actually, I think it has an incredible personal connection to all of us. An encouragement and, I hope, inspiration for us this morning. The title of the message is, The King Who Delegates. The King Who Delegates. This is how the kingdom of God operates. Let's start, first of all, by looking at an overwhelming need. An overwhelming need that we see here from this passage. And again, if you have your Bibles, I encourage you to have them open in whatever form you have them. Mark chapter 3, beginning in verse number 7. Let's start, first of all, by looking at verse 7. Jesus withdrew himself... So he was in the city. He withdraws himself with his disciples to the sea. Now, what sea is this? It's the Sea of Galilee. Now, you remember that Jesus was from the region of Galilee. It was in the northern part of Israel. And it was a particular large freshwater lake. You can see it today in the northeastern part of Israel called the Sea of Galilee. And Jesus went here, and it was kind of a base of operations for him. As we remember, Capernaum, the city that he operated in, was right on that lake. It was an important commercial center for that area. So Jesus withdraws himself from the city and goes to the seaside, probably a more isolated location than the city. And notice what it said. A great multitude from Galilee followed him. So that's the area that he was from and he, he often ministered in. 
and from Judea. Now again, do we know our geography? Judea was the southern part of Israel. It was the area encompassing Jerusalem. So again, think about what they're saying. Galilee, all a bunch of people from Galilee come. That's local to where he was. Then a bunch of people come from Judea, the southern part of Israel. Then notice what else he says, and from Jerusalem. Now Jerusalem was the capital city. It was the spiritual, religious, political center, cultural center of the entire nation. So now people are coming to him and making a significant trip. It said that the trip from Jerusalem to the Galilee of this area would have been perhaps as much as or more than 100 miles. I'm going to give you context from that. Duluth is about 130 miles from here. You can imagine people making a trip by foot, by animal, whatever it is, all the way up to see Jesus. That's a really significant trip in that day. And not only that, and from Idumea. Now, where's Idumea? Idumea has the idea of Edom, ancient Edom. It's even south of Judea. So this, what you could imagine, it would be like if you were up in Duluth and you said, a great crowd came from Duluth and a great crowd came from Minneapolis and a great crowd came even from Iowa. That's kind of like the idea of what you're thinking geographically, okay? And then it also says, and they came from beyond Jordan. Now you remember that the Jordan River, um, I'll try to mirror it here, is on the eastern side of Israel, flows down from the Sea of Galilee all the way to the Dead Sea in the south. That's where the Jordan River is. So if they came from beyond Jordan, they're coming from outside the border, they're coming from outside the land of, of uh, the, the interior of Israel and coming to him. It'd be like saying they came even from Wisconsin. They came from across the St. Croix River. Now notice what else he says. And they about Tyre and Sidon. Where is Tyre and Sidon? Okay, well, Jesus is in northeast Israel. These were people even north of that in northwest along the Mediterranean. They weren't from Israel. They were foreigners. They were Gentiles. Do you see what he's saying here in this geographical compendium? He's saying they came from everywhere. They came from an entire circle all over. They flocked to him, and it said it's a great multitude. This is a diverse crowd. They heard what great things he did. Do you know, you don't, I don't need to tell you this. If you present news of something exceptional or extraordinary happening, people are going to come. Because people are curious and because people have needs. And you can imagine these people desperate to be healed, desperate to have their lives restored to what they felt it should be. People who were demonically possessed and influenced and controlled by the devil. They are all flocking to him. And this was not only a diverse crowd, it was a very crushing crowd. These people, notice what it said of them. He spake to his disciples that a small ship should wait on him. The idea is think of a rowboat, okay? A small boat should wait on him because of the multitude lest they should throng him. Now, when we think that this crowd very easily could have numbered in the thousands or tens of thousands, 
That's probably the best guess. We're talking about thousands or tens of thousands of people. And these people are healing, hearing what he's doing, the healing. And notice what they're doing. For he had healed many insomuch that they pressed upon him for to touch him as many as had plagues. They were all just trying to touch him. Can you imagine a crowd of hundreds or thousands of people all trying to swarm around him and touch him because they so desperately wanted to be healed? Have you ever seen a crowd form in real time? I did once. I was on a trip. I was in actually New York City in Times Square. Tabitha and I had just been married. And I was right there, as right in front of me, a door opened and a man walked out. And I, I'm no pop culture maven, but I know exactly who this guy looked like. It was who probably many of you know as Snoop Dogg. I mean, just a dead ringer for one of the most popular musical artists of the day. And this guy walked out, and you would not have believed the people that just immediately swarmed him. I mean, Times Square, it just, woo! And they all start yelling, Snoop, Snoop, Snoop. And they're asking, and just this crowd presses on him. Well, it was actually kind of funny. It, it actually wasn't Snoop Dogg. It was a guy who goes around Times Square impersonating him. And I guess he just likes the attention or something. I don't get it. But, but he's a dead ringer, and he goes out, and people crowd him and think it's actually him. Well, it wasn't. But you can imagine Jesus shows up. All these people are desperate to be healed. And they're thronging him so much that Jesus says, for my safety, I'm going to need a rowboat because I might need to get out on the water where they can't come. I might need a place to escape lest they're going to press me. Now, again, this is, this is not even a joke. We heard even last fall, do you remember at that music festival in Texas where 10 people ended up dying because a crowd, a stampede just crushed? People asphyxiate in that kind of environment. We have seen news about that. So this is just this, this crushing crowd pressing on him. And notice also in verse 11, and unclean spirits, when they saw him, fell down before him and cried, saying, thou art the son of God. Demonic spirits were identifying him for who he was. They knew who he was. You're the son of God. And as we looked at earlier in this book, and he, straightly, he really strictly charged them that they should not make him known. Be quiet, he's saying. Again, as we said before, why would Jesus not want to be known by those demonic spirits publicized? Well, would you want a demon as your PR agent? Would you want a demon telling everyone to listen to you? No, you wouldn't. And Jesus says, I don't want that kind of publicity. He says, you be quiet. But again, just picture this neat, an incredibly diverse crowd of Jews and Gentiles. People pressing on him and people who were deeply, spiritually, and physically needy. Now, what does Jesus do in response to this overwhelming need? Look with me at verse 13. And he goeth up into a mountain and calleth unto him whom he would, whoever he desired, whoever he and they came unto him, and he ordained 12 that they should be with him and that he might send them forth to preach and to have power to heal sicknesses and to cast out devils. Let's see not only, first of all, an overwhelming need, but secondly, an ordaining king. An ordaining king. So here is Jesus. He has all power. He has all authority to look at a person who is afflicted with a demonic spirit and say, leave. Demonic spirit, leave him immediately, and the demonic spirit obeyed. He had the power to look at someone who was um, uh, uh, afflicted with an illness or a disease and say, you're healed, and he was. 
Why? Because he was the king. He is the king. He has all authority as the king to command. But notice here, he departs. So he steps away from the crowd and he goes up into a mountain. He retreats, if you will. Now, I'll just say this as a means of a footnote. Do you know all of us need time to retreat at certain seasons of our life? Sometimes we get the idea that it it is more spiritual to just grind our physical bodies into the ground and never have a chance to take a breath. Well, Jesus himself did. Jesus showed us an example that it is necessary for us to step away even from what appears to be an overwhelming need. He goes up into a mountain. He departs. Then what does he do? He chooses. Notice here. He calls unto him whom he would. Now, the idea of that word is literally who he wanted to. He was exercising his kingly choice. He wasn't saying, all right, raise your hand if you want to volunteer. He was saying, I want you to come, and 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 you three too. Let's go. You get that? He called unto him who he wanted. Now, how did he make this choice? We don't have this here recorded in Mark 3, but I'll give you just a little cross-reference. You can look at your own time. Luke 6 12 through 13, Luke 6, 12 through 13. Do you know what Jesus actually did before he called these men? Luke 6 says, and it came to pass in those days that he went out into a mountain, we've all read about that here in Mark 3, to pray and continued all night in prayer to God. And when it was day, he called unto him his disciples and of them he chose 12. This was a big decision, a big choice for Jesus. And what he did in preparation for that is he went out and prayed all night. This wasn't haphazard. This was him in full fellowship with his father. He departed, he chose, and then what did he do? Notice it says verse 14, and he ordained. He ordained 12. Now, you maybe have seen an ordination ceremony before an ordination service for someone who who was a pastor they're ordained and and it, it feels really significant and sober and important well this idea of ordained is not of a big ceremony the idea here is that Jesus made that's the idea of the word he made he made 12 of them disciples he said you're with me and notice what he did he ordained 12 that they should be what what is the next phrase With him, you're following me full time. In other words, we're not just going to meet up in the synagogue once a week. You're going to be with me. You're going to be living with me. You're going to be experiencing life with me. You're going to be sharing all the burdens and challenges of life with me. You are going to be with me. And not only that, that they should be with him and that he should send, that he might send them forth to preach and to have power to heal sicknesses and to cast out devils, to preach and to have power. Power to do what? To cast out devils and to heal. Now, let me ask you, what was Jesus actually ordaining them to do? Was he ordaining them to do something different than what he had been doing or the same? Exact same. What did Jesus do? He came preaching. That was first, right? 
Remember, we've seen before, Jesus healed people. He cast out the demons. Why did he do it? He did it to authenticate what he was saying. The preaching was central. The preaching was the most important. He came preaching the kingdom of God, and God's stamp of authority, of authenticity on what he did was these divine works that no one could counteract, that no one could say, there's not God's power at issue here. We're actually going to see in a couple of weeks, this was so overwhelming that the Pharisees came up with a different story. He's doing it through the devil. They had to realize it wasn't human. So that means it, it had to either be God's power or the devil's power. It, it, it couldn't be human. And they chose it was the devil's. But again, notice what's going on here. Jesus is saying you're going forth first to preach and then you're going to have power to heal the sick and to cast out devils. Now let's Note on this, stop for just a minute on this word power. There are two words, very uh, 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 important words in the Greek language for power. One is dunamis, like dynamite. Dynamite, that refers to the strength, the explosive strength of one's power. That's not the word that's used here. The word that's used here in the Greek is a word that again means authority. And the idea is you have liberty to act. Now, you know this if you're in the workplace. You, if you're an employee, you have authority to a certain extent, right? You have liberty to act in a certain sphere. But if you step outside your authority and act, what's going to happen to you? You're going to get fired. Why? Because someone above you has a broader authority to act, and they have not delegated, they have not given that authority to you. Your authority is in a particular area, but not beyond it. Now that idea just, I think, resonates with us. What is Jesus saying here? Jesus is saying, what's my authority? What is my kingly task? It's to preach, it's to heal, it's to cast out devils. And he says, what's yours? To preach, to heal, and to cast out devils. What an incredible delegation. He gave them authority. Whose authority? His authority. What kind of authority? As the king. The king said, you take my authority and you act like me. With my power. With my authority. Wow. Can you imagine being those 12 guys? Jesus chooses you, and then he sends you, and he says, act exactly like I've been. Preach just like me. Preach the kingdom. And while you're there, heal people. Who, me? Yeah, you. Why? Because I gave you authority. I'm the king. I can do that. And while you're doing that, if anyone approaches you who's demonically inflicted, cast out the demon. Who, me? Yeah, you. Why? Because I gave you authority. The ordaining king. Now, our tendency might, to say, might be to say this. Okay, well, I understand that. He must have had a really special group of guys. He must have had some incredibly gifted, credentialed followers. I mean, not, not any ordinary people could be expected to, to, to receive that kind of delegation to go forth to preach. Well, you all know where we're going with this. Were these guys somehow extraordinary human beings? Of course they weren't. An overwhelming need. Secondly, an ordaining king. And let's look finally at an ordinary group. 
an ordinary group? Who were these guys? Now, let me stop there with what we were saying with what often our expectation might be. Our expectation in our world today is that people often need to be credentialed to have a lot of authority, to have a lot of ability. Have you ever applied for a job and it it looked like the perfect job and you were getting so excited for your candidacy for it and then you scroll down a little bit to the credentials that were required? To the experience that was required? And what did they say? You need this kind of degree. And you say, I don't have that kind of degree. Or they say, you have to have 10 years of experience in this field. And you say, oh, I don't have that. Or you have to be proficient in these kinds of softwares. And you say, I'm not. Sometimes that can be really discouraging to a lot of us. We say, I, I, I want to do more, but I don't feel like I'm credentialed enough. I don't feel like I'm experienced enough. I don't feel like I'm proficient enough. That's the way the world works. You know, it's the most unrepresentative group in, in all of our society, the United States Supreme Court. The United States Supreme Court has nine people on it. Do you know with the exception of one person on that court, all of our justices went to one of two law schools, Yale Law School and Harvard Law School. Eight of the nine of them went to one of two law schools. Do you know how many people Yale admits each year of the people that apply? They accept about 7% of the people who apply to that law school, most prestigious law school along with Harvard in our country. Now, the people on the Supreme Court don't look anything like us in terms of their credentials. That would be very discouraging for someone who grows up wanting to be on the United States Supreme Court. I don't have those kind of credentials. Now, let me ask you this. What about the kingdom of God? Is Jesus looking to delegate his authority to the people who are credentialed, to the people who are experienced, and to the people who are proficient? Well, look at these 12 that he chose. Now, I want to pause for a moment. Next week, I want to dive into these 12 names. Sometimes we think about these 12 names and we know a few of them, but I actually think it'll be really fun for us next week just to understand who these guys were and why Jesus chose them. In fact, you're going to see next week that some of these guys we literally know nothing about. Nothing. We know nothing other than their names. There is not one word of theirs recorded in the Bible. Not one. All we know is their names. And some of them have multiple names, like nicknames. We just know virtually nothing about them. Let's think about some of these guys. I want to start with just a mental picture. You've seen the pictures of Jesus in popular art with his disciples at the Last Supper. I want you just to think for a moment, who were these disciples? And let's start with their age. Okay, just just stop for just a moment. If your idea this morning is that the disciples probably who were following Jesus were about 50 years of age and older, raise your hand. 50 years of age and old. That's just the problem. I'm not asking whether it's right or wrong. Just that's kind of your idea in your mind. They were 50 and above. Okay, we, we got maybe one or two there. How many of you would say they, were, they seem to me like they would be in their 40s, maybe to 50s, kind of in that age range? Anyone? That's just your picture of them. Okay, how about 30s to 40s? If you say 30s to 40s, that's kind of the picture I have in them. Okay, how many would say younger than 30? That's my picture of these, of these disciples, these apostles. Okay, all right. Do you know these guys were most likely teenagers? 
teenagers. You say, well, how do you know that? Well, take John. John was still writing. He was a friend of Jesus. He was still writing in AD 90s. You just do the math. He was an old guy at that point. But you just do the math. And you see that these guys lived long after Jesus lived. Not only that, it was the custom, scholars tell us, of Jewish young people in that day to start training with a rabbi in their teens and certainly below 30. These guys, if you would, the, the, the consensus of scholars and of commentators today is that these guys would have been between 12 and 30. Who was G, how old was Jesus? Jesus was in his early 30s. That's when he died. Now, I want you to imagine a group of people who are turning the world upside down, and the leader is in his early 30s, and his followers going around healing people and preaching might be 16, 18, 20, 22, 24. Does that change the way that we think about Jesus' selection of these people? By the way, it just says something to us too. Sometimes we can, especially as we get older, we have an idea that the work of God must be done, particularly through those who are more experienced or more senior, who, are, who look more like us. And in fact, we just see Jesus doing something extremely different, choosing really young people to perform his work. These people came from different walks of life. As we know, some of them were fishermen. Some of them may be farmers. We know there was a tax collector who had been called out of that position. Next week, we're going to see that there were at least two people in there who were radically different politically. One of them had been a tax collector. He was basically in favor of Rome and supporting Rome. And the other, there was another guy in there called Simon the Zealot. Do you know what a zealot means? It means someone who was virulently anti-Rome, pro-Jewish, pro-nationalist, a very big patriot against those Roman overlords. And Jesus brings them together and says, I want both of you in my group. I'm going to say something that might surprise you. Do you know both Democrats and Republicans can be Christians? Whoa. Do you know they can even be in the same church? Do you, know, do you know if we went around and polled, there are probably a lot of different people who voted for different people in the presidential election, and we can still be in the same church? We can see things differently on certain things? Jesus selected these people with an incredibly different and diverse approach. As I said, some people we know nothing about. Here's my point. All kinds of different strengths and weaknesses. Do you want the bombastic, authoritative one? There's Peter. Do you want the tender and compassionate and sympathetic one? There's John. Do you want the one who struggles with doubt? There's Thomas. The point is Jesus chose a diverse group of all kinds of different positions, and that means he can choose you too. You're not too little credentialed to be delegated to by Jesus. You're not too inexperienced or too young or too new in your faith to be used by Jesus to advance the kingdom. You're not too weak. You say, oh, if you knew how much I struggle with doubt or with other things or with these other areas, look at these guys. They're no different. It was an ordinary group. Now, how does this apply to us? Because maybe your reaction is, okay, well, those 12 guys got to go and they got to heal people and cast out devils. I, I've never done that. I, could, I don't think I could ever heal someone or do that. Well, 
Let me just make this one comment. We'll put it to one side. The question to the extent to which these miraculous, authoritative healing gifts persist today, we covered that in a sermon series. You can find it if you go search our sermon website in 1 Corinthians. We talked about that. I do think there was something special about the foundational nature of the church in these people. I'm not saying you should expect to go out and heal people or immediately to go out and cast out devils, though God in his sovereignty can choose for you to do that. But here's the point. Turn over to the book of John. John chapter 14. John chapter 14. I think this will help us. John 14, Jesus is giving the last teaching that he did to his disciples before he died, before he was crucified. And listen to what he says in verse number 12 of John chapter 14. He said, verily, verily, I say unto you, truly, truly, I want you to know this is serious. He that believeth on me, the works that I do shall he do also, and greater works than these shall he do, because I go unto my Father. Now, Jesus didn't say he that has credentials and that has experience and that has proficience will do greater works. Notice the word works is italicized. The idea is just greater things. He's going to do greater things. Now stop for a minute. Jesus said, if you believe on me, this is my promise. If you believe on me, why will you do greater things? Because I go to my Father. Now stop. What was Jesus saying when he said, I am going to my Father? What did Jesus say in the same teaching lesson that would happen when he went to his Father? What would he send? The Holy Spirit. When Jesus went to be with his Father, his Father sent the Holy Spirit to replace him. And that Holy Spirit indwells you if you believe in Jesus. He is inside you, empowering you. That is the consistent teaching of our Bible. You see, how in the world could I do greater things than Jesus? Now again, think about that. If you're thinking about, can I do more sensational things than Jesus? Of course you can't. Can you do anything more sensational than raising the dead? Can you do anything more sensational than touching a leper and healing it or speaking a word and a man with a withered hand? No, you can't do things more sensational, but that's not what he means. What does he mean when he says, if you believe in me, you will do greater things? He's saying that you're participating in the greater things than he could do. I'm going to make a phrase and then I'm going to explain it. Jesus is saying we can do more through his spiritual body than he did through his physical body here on earth. Do you understand? He can do more and greater things through his spiritual body than he did while on earth in his physical body. Because in his physical body, Jesus was in one place at one time, exercising his authority in a particular place. You understand that? Tens of thousands of people are crowding to him, and they're trying to touch him because the power was there. And what did Jesus do? He took 12 people, and he said, you go and exercise my same authority. And now today, 
He has a body that's still here on earth. It's you and it's me. And he is sending by the power of the Holy Spirit, the same power that empowered him in his life. He is sending us to the uttermost parts of the earth to exercise his authority, to advance the kingdom of God and to push back and oppose the kingdom of the devil. Friends, today, Jesus' body is at work in Ukraine, boldly and courageously risking their lives to minister to people in great need. Today, Jesus' body is at work in communist China in underground churches risking death to spread the gospel of Jesus Christ. Today, the body of Jesus Christ is underground in Muslim countries seeking to, to, to bring to the light to people who are in darkness at risk of death. Today, the body of Christ is in this city, implanted in homes in this neighborhood, being salt and light where they are called to be. Today, the body of Christ is at work across every um, inch, if you will, of this land. It has invaded and the authority of Christ is available to advance the kingdom and to oppose the devil's work. And here's the point. You and I are a part of it. If we'll just be the body. If we'll just be the body. What does that mean? A body has hands. A body has feet. A body has eyes and ears and nose. A body has a beating heart. A body is dependent on all its members. And this is what I say first, is that there is an incredible responsibility of being delegated to have authority. Let me give you an example. The United States is represented at the United Nations by a woman named Linda Thomas Greenfield first African-American woman to represent our country at the United Nations. When Linda Thomas Greenfield speaks in the, president, in the president's authority, it is the authority of the United States. She is speaking as the United States to the United Nations. Can you imagine the responsibility that Ms. Thomas Greenfield feels when she steps up to this international body and her words are the United States' words? incredible responsibility that is and the idea here is when scripture says for example that we're to do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus it's the idea that everything we do in our lives is as Christ's representative on earth we are acting in his name we are acting in his authority in our workplaces in our homes in our neighborhoods and in our churches we are his delegates it's an extraordinary responsibility. And I would say, friends, it should explode the idea that church is just something we do on Sunday morning. Church is something that is a spectator sport. Church is something we pay pastors to advance the kingdom. It's one of the great blessings of having a full-time job. There's not paid staff that really we're paying here to advance the kingdom. It's all of us. We got to do it together or it's not going to get done. We're all delegates of Jesus Christ operating in his name and under his authority. Don't be a spectator, friends. 
Let's get to work. There's a job to do. There's authority that we possess. But I don't only want to focus on the responsibility. As we close this morning, I want to focus for a moment on the privilege. I don't know that there can be a greater privilege than having the king in God's kingdom tap you on the shoulder and say, I want you to represent me in this world. If you were to receive a call from the president of the United States who said, I want you to represent the United States before this country as our ambassador, can you imagine a greater political privilege? Wow, me? And just like Jesus chose those 12, he has chosen us. He says, you go act in my name and under the power of my authority. Which tells me this, the extent to which you and I are going to act as the body of Christ this week is the extent to which we have embraced the responsibility of doing so and we have embraced the privilege. What would it look like tomorrow morning if you woke up and went to your living room first thing in the morning and Jesus himself was standing there? Jesus himself was standing there. And as you fell down before him, he says, get up. Today, I want you to represent me to everyone you come into contact with. Would that inspire you? Would that cause you to say, I've got a new outlook on my day today. No matter how busy my calendar is, Jesus personally said that I was representing him today. What would that do to you? And of course, you know where I'm going with this. Jesus is authorizing you tomorrow morning from the time you wake up to represent him. He already has, if you're, his, if you're his disciple. He's already authorized you to act in his name, to represent him to every single person you come into contact with. He's already authorized you to advance his kingdom today and tomorrow and the next day and to oppose the devil's kingdom wherever you see it. He's already authorized you to do it and to act in his authority. There's responsibility, but there's immense privilege. And I encourage you today as we close, remember, there is a king who delegates. And because he delegates, he has delegated to you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the encouragement that just like Pete, Jesus chose 12 ordinary nondescript people, to bear his authority, to advance the kingdom and oppose the devils. Father, you are delegating and choosing to send us. Whatsoever you do in word and in deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus. Yes, that's a responsibility and it's a privilege. May we carry that out, Father. Let's pause for a moment with our heads bowed and our eyes closed and just ask God to apply this message to our hearts. One very important question is, have you entered the kingdom of God by faith in Jesus Christ? Are you his disciple? Have you submitted to his authority? The king won't send you out to act on his behalf unless you are submitted to him, if, unless you are in his kingdom.
And if you have any questions about accepting King Jesus today, about entering his kingdom, I sure would love to talk to you before you leave. But if you are in his kingdom, you know you are in it. Let me ask, are you being a spectator right now? Are you a spectator? Or are you acting in his name? Not proudly, humbly. Are you accepting your responsibility and embracing the privilege of being the body, being in the body of Jesus Christ? Let's pause for a moment.